0: to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. The world is getting crazier every day. And sometimes the craziness gets so out of hand that it's very difficult to even begin to anticipate what's going to happen next. But we're going to try to sort it out little bit at a time. Welcome to News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. The biggest stories this week were the stories coming out of China. What's going on with China? China. It's not just one story. It's a number of stories, and they're all complicated, And confusing. So let's begin with the US-China negotiations on a new bilateral trade agreement. We started out having negotiations with China to build a brand new trade relationship and end some of the very uneven and unfair practices that we were being subject to. At the same time, we offered China the benefit of a truly fair trade relationship with the United States. Well, it started off very optimistically and President Trump and President Xi Jinping both seemed very optimistic. And yet the talks are faltering and the American people are having a hard time understanding why. On the left, they blame Trump. They say his he's a terrible negotiator. They say he doesn't know what he's doing. They say he's negotiating badly. But the truth lies somewhere else entirely. Donald Trump is a brilliant negotiator. He's actually doing exactly the right things. But China is a difficult negotiating partner. And here's why. The issues that are important to them have less to do with what would be written in the agreement than what it allows China to do outside of the agreement. And that has been one of the problems. When the Chinese negotiating team came to Washington last year and they sat for days hammering out some of the issues, they seemed to be making a lot of progress. In fact, President Trump held an open meeting open being open to the press and open to the public, and you could watch it on television. All the members of the committee were there, on the American side and on the Chinese side. And in the course of this open discussion, the president said that it looks like about 95% of the issues have been agreed upon. And then he went around and he said, is that right? And everybody nodded in agreement. The other 5%, still needed to be negotiated. And these were the really difficult issues like intellectual property and and so forth. And then the team went home. And China brought in its senior, senior people to review the document that the United States and China had agreed on in principle through their negotiating teams. And lo and behold, they didn't like the terms because there was accountability in this agreement. China couldn't just go off the reservation and expect there not to be consequences, as China has done many times before, and we'll get to that later in another context. So they didn't like it, and they essentially tore up all the work that had been done previously by their negotiating team. Now, when Donald Trump and Xi Jinping met in Osaka at the G20 meeting in June, Donald Trump said to Xi Jinping, why don't we just go back to the earlier agreement that we had before? We've tried to hammer out some of these differences, but we actually came up with something. And he was met with a stony silence. No response. Accountability. This is a big issue for China. China has a history of abrogating agreements that they have signed. And this is another example. The big issues for them were that they did not want to be held accountable for stealing technology, for forcing companies to adhere to their very forceful demands about turning over their proprietary materials. And they weren't simply having any of Donald Trump's accountability. And that's basically what sabotage the initial trade talks. Now, we come to a different situation. We come to the situation where China is now embroiled on several fronts. We know, for example, that China is building military facilities in the South China Sea. They weren't supposed to do that. That's another agreement that they broke. And China is also having troubles In Hong Kong, big troubles. And we will get to that in a few minutes. And the third problem that China has is that its economy is going downhill much faster than it should be, and it's dangerous. Companies are going out of business. Foreign companies are moving their operations to other countries, and China is going to be suffering economically from all these shenanigans. As the Chinese economy suffers, Xi Jinping is going to be increasingly nervous about the possibility of some kind of uprising against him in China, and we see it already in Hong Kong, and it may be that his own position as leader of this country may soon be in jeopardy. So you see, it's complicated. And as for the tariffs, China has responded by saying, we will no longer buy any American farm products. But the truth is that they can't get the kind and quality and amount of soy, for example, from anywhere else in the world than they can get from the United States, who was their chief supplier. And this is hurting China. And it's hurting the Chinese people. Now, of course, this is also hurting American farmers. But the president is trying to take care of them temporarily with subsidies. And hopefully, I believe he hopes, that the situation will resolve itself in a favorable way for everybody. But then you have Hong Kong. That's a big story as well. In Hong Kong, as we've talked before, this is probably the third or fourth time we've talked about Hong Kong, because this is something that's been going on for almost three months. People of Hong Kong were very upset when their government, which is not elected by them as it was supposed to be, but was appointed by the Chinese government, decided to put an extradition law on the books to be approved and implemented. Now, this extradition law would have said that a citizen of Hong Kong can be extradited and put into the mainland China, the communist China judicial system. Now the people in Hong Kong did not like that at all. According to the agreement that was signed by China and the United Kingdom, when Britain ceded the peninsula back to mainland China, according to that agreement, Hong Kong would remain autonomous for an additional 50 years until 2047. But little by little, China has been chipping away at these freedoms. The people of Hong Kong are not allowed to elect their own government. And the executive director of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, was never elected by the people of Hong Kong. She was appointed by the mainland Chinese government. Now, that wasn't the agreement. That was not what China was supposed to do. That's not what Hong Kong was supposed to be. And the people of Hong Kong decided they had had enough. So they began to demonstrate. Now, from all accounts, these demonstrations were peaceful. At least they started out that way. People gathered in the streets, and they held up signs, and they chanted slogans. But that's all they did. And on one Sunday... A million people came out into the streets of Hong Kong to demonstrate their displeasure with what the government of Hong Kong was doing. The demonstrations went on for weeks. It's already been, it's been a full nine weeks since these demonstrations began, and the demonstrations have gotten bigger, different, but always, including this past weekend, the demonstrations began peacefully. In this past week, the demonstrators, thousands of them, took over the Hong Kong airport. They took it over. They occupied it. Peacefully. What the demonstrators have succeeded in doing is to shut this airport down. All flights were canceled. This is a big deal, and I'll tell you why. The Hong Kong airport is the 8th busiest airport in the world. 72 million people go through this airport every year. And there are 1,100 passengers and cargo flights every day. I saw a photo of a large handmade sign that demonstrators held up at the airport this weekend. It said, Sorry for the inconvenience. We are fighting for the future Of our home. And that says it all. They don't want the violence. They don't want the confrontation with the police. They have lived all of their lives in freedom and they don't want to lose it. But China isn't having any of it. Latest reports say that China is massing troops on its border with the Hong Kong Peninsula. So why is Hong Kong so important to China. Hong Kong has been for many years the financial center of the region and China wants it back. Hong Kong's economy has been based on a free market system since the British took it over in the middle of the 19th century. This extraordinary city has thrived. Its economy is vibrant, and it's a leader in the Asian financial markets. But never mind. China wants it back. So the Hong Kong police and their Chinese reinforcements are out in force with a particularly virulent kind of tear gas that not only makes you, your eyes water, but creates rashes on your skin and makes it difficult to breathe, and in short, can make you very sick. They also use batons quite violently and have arrested many demonstrators brutally, throwing them to the ground and mashing their faces into the street, despite the fact that the demonstrators have been nonviolent. If these demonstrations continue, and if they are successful, China is in for a huge loss from many points of view. These demonstrations started because the people of Hong Kong were angry. They were angry that China was breaking its promises. It was breaking its contract with them, that they would be autonomous for 50 years after the British left. But as I said before, China has been slowly but surely chipping away at all of these freedoms Xi Jinping has made it very clear that he will not tolerate this kind of opposition. But the people of Hong Kong have also made it clear that they are not going to give up so easily. They've lived all their lives in freedom and they have enjoyed all the benefits of living in a free economy. They've tasted freedom and they're going to fight to keep it. These are the faces of patriots they're the faces of courage and yet the press and the world in general is having a hard time recognizing that i have heard commentators talk about the rabble-rousers in hong kong and i have heard them talk about the rioters in hong kong but you have to understand how that picture became something newsworthy it was the actions of the police started weeks ago when they started trying to contain the demonstrators. They started out with batons and tear gas. The demonstrators, although they started out peacefully, began to fight back. Who wouldn't? So as the weeks progressed, the demonstrations continued and the police actions got worse and more brutal every week. And that's how the stories about these peaceful demonstrations turn into stories about riots. You know, they say if it bleeds, it leads. And in this case, if it's about riots, it's much more newsworthy than if it's about peaceful demonstrations. And so this is how the story is twisted and how people misunderstand what is really going on. As I said last week, these demonstrations are more than just a reaction to a bad law. The people of Hong Kong don't want mob violence. They have demonstrated peacefully, even in the face of a brutal police force. But think for a minute. If China takes back Hong Kong, let's say that China breaks all of its commitments and takes back Hong Kong and wraps it into its Chinese Communist economy. What will happen to Hong Kong? All of the glitter and the wealth that existed for the last 170 years in a free market economy, all that will be gone. China is deeply involved and engaged in an effort to put down these demonstrations And they have even blamed the United States for contributing to the chaos. So what began as a civil protest against an egregious law has turned into something else entirely. It has turned into a movement, a fight for freedom by a people who have never known anything else. And the outcome of this is difficult to predict. But every indication is that China will use serious force to deal with the demonstrations in Hong Kong. If there is a confrontation, it is going to be a terrible confrontation. And as I see it, the outcome will be tragic for everyone concerned. Okay, that was heavy. I'm going to take a short break and then I'll be right back. Don't go away.
1: The question I always get asked is, where do I get the energy from? Well, keeping up with Malcolm Out Loud is no easy task, friends, even for Malcolm. Well, you may know that I've personally been taking Healthy Cell for some time now. Well, the great news is Healthy Cell has a new type of natural supplement called the nutrition gel. So no more hard-to-swallow pills. Uh, the good-tasting gel can be mixed into smoothies, yogurt, or water. These gels provide maximum absorption of essential nutrients, and it's healthy for our gut, not abrasive like pills can be. You know, it's time for all of us to go pill-free. And you can try it with a free two-day supply. Just cover two ninety-five shipping, and the company Healthy Cell will cover the cost of the product. Go to HealthyCell.com forward slash Outloud or simply click the Healthy Cell logo at the top of AmericaOutloud.com. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow banning, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: You know, those of you who have been listening to this program on a more or less regular basis, have probably heard me speak, and maybe even more than once, on one of my pet peeves, which is the fact that our kids are not learning English, not properly anyway. They don't learn in school the disciplines of good grammar. They don't know how to understand how English is constructed. So what happens is they grow up and they become sports announcers or uh, news anchors or talk show hosts and they will say things like between you and I and so forth and that's just bad grammar. The important point is that English is a wonderful language and it's very expressive and it's very articulate. You can say just about anything you want But our kids have been so badly educated in the structure of the English language, I'm not convinced that this isn't part of the reason that they've made up a language of their own. And they say things that I don't understand at all. Anyway, that's a pet peeve of mine. But I have another pet peeve. It's not a pet. And it's very much a peeve. I am angered by the way people misuse the language or weaponize it in such a way that it becomes dangerous. Language becomes dangerous and inspires people to violence, not because the words have any special, particular meaning that somehow stimulates a part of your brain to to violence, but that the associations with the words are misused to radicalize people and to spur them on to anger, which leads to violence. So for example, if somebody offends you in some way, you can accuse him of being a racist. You can accuse him of being a Nazi. You can call him a white supremacist. And there doesn't seem to be any linkage at all between what he said and those words. You can call him anything you like in the current climate and you'll have the sympathy of many. Being a racist doesn't mean that you're actually speaking out against somebody's race. You could be speaking out against his speech or his dress or his behavior and still call him a racist. It doesn't have to have the meaning that it was intended to have. And that's part of where the problem lies. There are a bunch of examples of this. You know, when Black Lives Matter took to the streets and said, what do we want dead cops? When do we want them now? That was using language in a very provocative way that was designed to inspire violence. We've used language, for example, to demonize law enforcement. And now you have in New York City people who are running around in the streets attacking New York policemen. New York's finest. At best, it's disrespectful. But it lowers the value of the service that the police can provide in a city like New York, which desperately needs policemen. So that's one way that words can be used to provoke, to inspire violence. But I want to talk about something a little different, something that infuriates me, something that I feel personally. I was um, given by a distant cousin of mine a genealogy that goes back probably a 150 years. And I saw where my forebears came from. And one of the lines of my family tree came from a a little town on the Latvian-Lithuanian border. And many of them moved to Riga. Riga is a city in Latvia. It's the capital. And in 1941, the Nazis marched in. And all of my family, who was left in Riga, Latvia were murdered, horribly murdered. So when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that the internment camps that we have on our southern border are concentration camps and others follow her and repeat what she says that they're concentration camps, I have a personal reaction to that. And I have to tell you from my own personal experience from my own personal life history and family history that they haven't a clue what they're talking about. They're just being stupid. But in their stupidity, they are causing an enormous hurt to a great number of people, those who survived who were in concentration camps, or those who survived and lost parents and brothers and sisters and cousins and lost them to the Nazis. And that's another word, by the way, Nazi. It's so easy to call someone a Nazi these days in this country. Oh, it's easy. It's just, oh, he's a Nazi. So-and-so's a Nazi. Donald Trump is a Nazi. No, he is not. You stupid people who call other people Nazis are beyond stupid. You haven't a clue what you're talking about. And that bothers me a lot because you throw these words around like confetti and you have no idea what it means to be a Nazi, what the Nazis were like, and what they did to the people of Europe, and particularly to the Jews of Europe. So I've asked Greg the Storyteller, our old friend, to come and read to you an introduction to a book called Shalom Means Peace. It's a story about Israel. But in his introduction, he talks about his own experience in Nazi Europe. Now, this book, Shalom Means Peace, was written by a British uh, author by the name of Robert St. John. Now, those of you who are familiar with British nomenclature and are purists will rush up and say, oh, no, no, that's not St. John, that's Sinjin. That's the way the Brits pronounce the name St. John. Uh, But no. I call him Robert St. John because he was very particular about the way people pronounced his name and he made it very clear that his name was Robert St. John. So that's what I'm going to call him and I would like to introduce you to this book. The rest of the book talks about his experiences in Israel. Now Israel at the time he is referring to, in this section of the book, was known in the world as Palestine. It was a colony of the British called the British Mandate of Palestine. So when he refers to what is now Israel, he calls it Palestine, and that's what he means. This is just a heads up for you because the word has, like other words we've been talking about, the meaning has changed dramatically over the years. Okay. The section that Greg is going to read to you today is the introduction. And it talks about the author's experiences in Nazi Europe. So let me just go ahead and introduce you to Greg, the storyteller. Greg, take it away.
2: Shalom means peace. The story of unforgettable people in Palestine. Copyright 1949 by Robert St. John. To the children of Mishmar Ha'emek, who never made the forest. To Yitzhak and Benjamin, who had just begun to live again. To David Courtney, who calls them such sweet people. To the Polish rabbi, who was an old oil painting. To Joe, who was sure he was no damn idealist. To Rafi, the Sabra, who proved a theory. To Mane, the cannonball artist. To Zapora, bird in flight. And to others. Everywhere, who hunger and thirst for shalom, this book is humbly dedicated. Forward. I am not a Jew, but early in 1941, I was working in Romania as a correspondent for the Associated Press. King Karol had abdicated and fled. The Germans had taken over the country and were preparing their campaign against Yugoslavia and Greece and their attack on Russia. My local tipster was Alex Collar, the redactor of uh, Bucharest Morning Paper who kept me informed of what was going on behind the scenes in the Romanian capital. Alex Collar was a cultured gentleman, a scholar in many fields, and the best reporter I've ever known. He was also a Jew. Most professional men in the Balkans in those days were Jews. But by the start of 1941, many Romanian Jews had already gone south, aware that their country would soon be listed with Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Hungary as an unhealthy place for men of their religion. Yet Alex Collar never considered running. We had many arguments about it. I wanted him to try for an American passport. He waved the idea aside. When the Romanian fascist organization called the Iron Guard began licking the boots of the Nazis by staging pogroms, Alex Koller was one of the few Jews I knew in Bucharest who went about his business as if he were in no danger. At least twice a day, often ten or twenty times a day, he came to see me to report developments. He gave me stories of King Mihai's connection with the Iron Guard, how he had attended meetings of the organization, even at the time these local fascists were plotting the overthrow of his own father. He gave me many exclusive stories. He had ways of knowing what went on, even in the king's secret chambers. And he had no fear. He refused to run, although the hot breath of the Nazis was already on the back of his neck. But one night, as I sat reading in the library of the villa I had rented on the edge of Bucharest, the doorbell rang. Was Alex's caller. His face was as white as this sheet of paper. In an excited whisper, he said, "I'm sorry to trouble you. I, I do it only for my wife and daughter. Uh, they are in the taxicab out there. I-, I bring them here to see if maybe, perhaps it's too much to ask. But one hour ago, I I heard about the plans. T- tonight, the Iron Guard will make it the biggest pogrom." And I'm told by good friends who are not Jews that my name's on the list for tonight. It is not surprising, but it is my wife and my daughter I worry about. Uh, Will you take them in? Will you hide them for me? It is much to ask. It may bring harm to you. Uh, This is our fight, not yours. But I I ask nothing for myself. If I must go as others have gone, it is as it must be. Uh, Only you will take care of them for me, won't you? The man who built the villa was an eccentric. He built a four-story house with music rooms, library, parlors, half a dozen chambers for servants, but only one bedroom. They said he did not like people. So there was one master bedroom and no other. That night, Mr. and Mrs. Alex Collar and daughter slept in the master bedroom with the door locked from the outside. I spent the night in a chair in the library, reading Mein Kampf, with an American automatic in my lap and the bedroom key in my pocket. No one came. The next morning, Alex Collar made a telephone call. As he returned from the phone, his face was as white as it had been the night before when he made his speech standing in the shadow of the doorway. But what he reported made me happy, in a strange way. Happy that I'd been given a chance to save at least one human being from... The Iron Guard during the night had gone around Bucharest with trucks rounding up the Jews on their list. No one the next morning, or even weeks later, was sure of the exact number. Hundreds, anyway. They took their victims to the local abattoir on the outskirts of the city. The victims were stripped naked. Then they were forced to get down on all fours like animals. Then they were driven up the wooden ramp of the slaughterhouse like animals. At the top of the ramp, an iron guardist with wooden mallet hit each man or woman over the head, the way a slaughterhouse employee would do with a cow or a pig. Then a colleague standing beside him slit the jugular vein with a sharp knife in accordance with good slaughterhouse procedure. Others with diseased minds took the dying victims and hung them on iron hooks on the wall, the way slaughterhouse people do with four-legged animals. Privileged members of the Iron Guard finally went from corpse to corpse with rubber stamps. The words they impressed on the Jewish bodies were the Romanian equivalent of fit for human consumption. Dachau and Buchenwald were worse, but Dachau and Buchenwald came later. Gas chambers are more horrible than abattoirs. This was merely my introduction to the disease of anti-Semitism. I have never forgotten it. I remember the story each time some hotel man at home says, you'll be happy here, our place is completely restricted. I remember the abattoir of Bucharest every time I hear someone say, some of my best friends are Jews, but have you heard the story about... I remembered the abattoir of Bucharest when I decided to go off to witness the birth of a nation in the Middle East and watch it struggle to keep alive. The words which follow are not an attempt to pass judgment on the rights and the wrongs which have been committed in Palestine. This is not the report of an expert on Arab Zionist affairs. This is merely the story of a few people I met who played their large and small roles in making a dream come true, a few people who found their promised land. I went to Palestine hating war and believing that at best it is sometimes a bad means to a good end and that the victors, as their reward, are often visited by the very evils against which they fought. I went to Palestine convinced that nationalism is one of the root evils of modern civilization and that only the rapid growth of the world government idea can avoid the great cataclysm. I left Palestine with those convictions unchanged. I found many Israelites of a like mind. The state of Israel is an experiment in nationalism, and it survives today as the result of bravery in battle. But it needs to be often repeated that the Israelites were forced down the path they followed by moral corruption at the great power level. Had the Balfour Declaration been carried out? Had the Jews not been made pawns in a game of power politics, imperialism, and oil? Had the United States not vacillated after November 29, 1947? Had the United Nations created an instrumentality to enforce its partition plan? The evils of excessive nationalism and war could have been avoided.
0: Thank you, Greg. And thank you, Robert St. John, for giving us some insight into the horrors of who the Nazis were and what they did and how we need to learn from the history that came before us as we embark into the future, which will be the history for our children and grandchildren. And if any of you know people who think it's funny or in some way meaningful to call someone a Nazi because they don't like the way he thinks, remember this story and tell your your friend or acquaintance that they don't know what they're talking about. And that they maybe should go and study a little history before they shoot their mouths off again. And maybe the next time you hear someone throw the word Nazi around and call someone in the United States, maybe an an ICE officer or maybe just somebody in conversation or a congressman or a politician or just somebody they call an activist. You will understand that the words that they use are words which have such an evil connotation that even using them in reference to anything that is going on in America is criminal and it is unacceptable. Well, you can see I'm a bit passionate about this and I apologize if I have taken it too far over the edge, but I want you to know that for me, it is important because I lost a large piece of my family to these evil people, these cruel, inhumanly cruel people, and I will never forget. And I hope now you also will never forget. Okay, now we're gonna take another break, take a deep breath, and move on to something a little bit lighter. Have you ever been to the Iowa State Fair? Well, in the next segment, I'm going to take you there. And we're going to see some of the Democratic candidates who made their way to one of the best and brightest and fun state fairs in the country.
1: It's your news and entertainment network, news blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Outloud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy
2: Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store.
0: Well, it's the middle of August, and guess what that means? It's time for all the state fairs that happen all around the country. The big fair, the really, really big fair, is in Iowa. And I was there once, and it's awesome. Now, if you have never been to the Iowa State Fair, you really do need to get out there once in your life and see what goes on. Do you remember the... uh, rogers and hammerstein musical state fair well that was supposedly taking place in dallas there's a line there dallas to donuts at your state fair but the truth is as i've been told that the state fair was modeled after the iowa state fair only iowa didn't scan as well as dallas you can't say it's Des Moines to donuts, that doesn't work. So it got to be Dallas. But Iowa is the place to go for a state fair. The food at the Iowa State Fair, as I remember it, was unbelievable. Fried everything, fried chocolate, fried ice cream. Uh, and, and you know, Iowa's a big pork state, so every, everything pork is there. Uh, it's wonderful. Also, they have an exhibit there where you can actually see baby animals, baby farm animals being born, and they time the breeding so that the births will actually take place during the week of the Iowa State Fair. So why do I t- why do I mention this? Why am I talking about the Iowa State Fair? Well, for one thing, it's uh, it's a fun fair, and if you ever have a chance to be in Iowa during the second week in August, you really should plan to put that on your itinerary. But that's not the only reason. This is the last summer before the Iowa caucuses for the 2020 election cycle. And it's gonna be a big election for president. And it's an important one. So all the candidates have been making their appearances at the Iowa State Fair. And some of them are funny, and some of them are not so funny. Some of them are a little sad. Bernie Sanders was there, for example, and I'm not sure why he came, because according to at least one report, he spent most of his time power walking around the fairgrounds with a scowl on his face, occasionally waving to people, barely talking to anybody. Apparently, he didn't ever learn the art of retail politics. The whole idea of going to a place like this is to talk to people, to let them shake hands with you and get that personal connection going. But Bernie Sanders didn't do that. Now, there were plenty other... Candidates, Remember, we still have 22 Democrat candidates running for president after Swalwell dropped out, and 21 of them showed up at the Iowa State Fair. Now, Joe Biden came and made the news because he said something like, poor kids have just as much talent and opportunity as white kids. That's Uncle Joe. Jerry Lewis was a comedian. He used to say, My tongue got in front of my eye teeth and I couldn't see what I was saying. That sounds like, that sounds like Joe Biden. So, Uncle Joe made a couple of gaffes, but he went around, he was all, he was game. He was a game candidate. He went around at uh, what, 76 years old, and he walked around in the heat looking chipper, shaking hands, smiling, greeting people, talking to people, That's retail politics. That's the way it's supposed to be done. Iowa is a big magnet right now for candidates. And as you read the newspapers, you'll see that all the candidates, one after another, are making their pilgrimage to Iowa and trying to win votes and influence people. There is a spot at the Iowa State Fair and it's called the Soapbox. And a candidate can get up there and speak to the crowd. And I have to tell you guys, last week, according to the weather reports, last week was really, really hot and steamy. But nevertheless, Amy Klobuchar was uh, flipping pork chops. She she was there for nearly eight hours in the sweltering heat. The uh, Iowa State Fair is fun. I'll talk to you a little bit about the food there, but This is uh, something that, if you haven't experienced it and you get a chance to go out to Iowa, it's worth doing. Other people who were there uh, were Kirsten Gillibrand, she's from New York, and Michael Bennett from Colorado, and Steve Bullock from Montana, and John Hickenlooper from Colorado, and Julian Castro, and Tulsi Gabbard, and Bill de Blasio, they were all there. And they walked around the fairgrounds, tasting the food, sampling the rides, talking to people, shaking hands, and getting up on the Des Moines Register soapbox and giving their speeches. It was hot, it was crowded, but they all managed to hold their own in this very happy setting. So let me tell you a little bit about the Iowa State Fair as I remember it and also as I've been able to read up on it during, uh, during the last week. The Iowa State Fair is famous for its butter cow. This is a sculpture, lifelike, life-size, of a cow. The cow is made entirely of butter. And it's, it's just amazing. It's kept in a cool compartment. You can see it through the glass. And it's really, every year it's a little bit different, but it's always a cow. And it's one of the displays that the Iowa State Fair is famous for. All the candidates had their pictures taken with the cow. And then you have the animals. And there are so many animals. There are all the kinds of farm animals you can think of. There is the area where the Babies are born, and there are also competitions for the best wool, for the the best uh, conformation of sheep and goat and chickens. It's all and pigs, of course, pigs. This is Iowa. So, this is the the sort of the basics of the Iowa State Fair. But to take you a little further, the most famous attraction of everything in the Iowa State Fair is the food. The competition for a place as a vendor at the Iowa State Fair is hot and heavy all year long. And the vendors work hard to create new and interesting and exotic and weird foods that they can sell at the Iowa State Fair. And only the best and the most creative and the most interesting and the tastiest have the opportunity to have a, a a booth or a truck there the amount of food the the creativity of the food is just unbelievable every year there is a competition to bring new food to the fair and this year alone there were 50 new food and drink offerings you know what the biggest the biggest draw for for the beer tents was. Corn dog beer. Honestly, corn dog beer. It sounds weird, but I am told it was delicious. I I saw a news clip on it and everybody was saying how good it was. And then there's the food. Let me read you from the list of food offerings. See if any of these sound appetizing. Apple pie on a stick. Bacon-wrapped deep-fried Italian sausage on a stick. Brownie deep-fried on a stick. Bacon-crisp ice cream on a stick. Cheese on a stick. Mozzarella, cheddar, and jalapenos. Chocolate-covered key lime pie on a stick. Caprese salad on a stick. And so, oh, deep-fried Twinkies on a stick. Fruit kebab peach, strawberry, grapes, pineapple topped with chocolate and nuts, funnel cake on a stick, ice cream on a stick, it's all deep fried, you got to remember that, mushrooms on a stick, peanut butter and jelly on a stick, and so forth. Okay, so you get the general idea, right? And that's only a taste. There were 50 new items this year, including the corn dog beer. So as I said, food is the big attraction here. So what did the candidates eat? Now there's a question. Well, let's see. Kamala Harris spent her time at the fair flipping pork chops and sharing recipes. So I guess we know what she ate. And Cory Booker, who is a vegan, he found something that he could eat, which was Deep-fried peanut butter and jelly. Bernie Sanders had a corn dog. And Tulsi Gabbard, who is a vegetarian, found deep-fried avocados and veggie corn dogs to satisfy her appetite. Kirsten Gillibrand, well, she was kind of boring. She settled for a two-scoop strawberry ice cream cone. And there you have it. This is what the candidates ate at the Iowa State Fair. So let me go back to telling you about the fair. Well, first of all, the animals. The animals are just about every farm animal you can imagine is there. And they're judged, they compete against each other, and if you're lucky, you win a ribbon. A blue ribbon for first prize, red for second, and I think yellow for third, I don't know. But The point is that it's a lot of fun. Now, if you're a kid and you want to see the baby animals, then you go into a a special house there and you can actually see baby animals being born. You can see chicks hatching. And if you're lucky, you can see a calf or a lamb being born, actually being born. So that's the Iowa State Fair. And it's an experience and a half, and it's worth going to if you happen to be in the neighborhood. We've talked some about the candidates going to the Iowa State Fair because it's pre-election and they're all running to be president of the United States. And they come to the Iowa State Fair because, because the Iowa caucus will be the first contest, as it always is, in the upcoming presidential election. It comes before any of the primaries in any of the other states, including New Hampshire, which has traditionally been the first. So, the only candidate who did not show up at the Iowa State Fair was Beto O'Rourke, and he had a pretty good reason for staying away. He actually wanted to be with his community, he said. His community is El Paso, and following the shootings last week there, uh, that seems to me a pretty good reason to be staying close to home. In any case, let's talk a little bit about the candidates because 22 candidates is really too much. I remember, and I've told this story before, but I remember in the last presidential election when the Republicans had a total at one point of 17 candidates and uh, a friend of mine in California, I've got lots of friends in California, I keep talking about them, Uh, This friend said to me, which of those clowns are you going to vote for? And I thought it was an incredibly rude question, but nevertheless, and I don't think I even answered it. But nevertheless, here we are with the Democrats having 22 candidates. And I honestly, between you and me, I don't think any one of them can hold a candle to Donald Trump on the stage, on a debate stage. But we'll see. In any case, what's happening between them is very interesting, because instead of pointing their rage and their anger and their political barbs at the president, who is actually, would be their opponent if they should get the nomination, they're attacking each other. Tulsi Gabbard was attacking Kamala Harris, and Kamala Harris was attacking Joe Biden and so forth. This is nuts. They're also, unbelievably, they're attacking Barack Obama. And that is that goes beyond bizarre because he was their, their knight in shining armor. He was the, the best president ever, ever, ever in the United States, according to these candidates. And now, all of a sudden, they are bringing him down. So... This is what's happening among the candidates, and it's very sad. Another sad thing that I believe we talked about last week was that they're losing all sense of proportion. So that after the murders in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio, they began a furious fundraising campaign and almost immediately wrote a letter to their donors to solicit more money for their campaigns. Now, that's not just in bad taste. Well, it's in very bad taste. But there's something just very basically wrong about that. They should have been trying to bring the country together. They should be showing how much power they would have as president to bind the country. But instead, they're doing just the opposite. They were attacking the president and holding him responsible for the shootings, of all things, and then they were using this this uh, th- these attacks they were using these shootings as a reason for soliciting more money it's callous it's cold and it's disgusting so that's what's happening with with the democrats and it's it's sad now among the strongest supporters of the democrats are the elite in Hollywood. And they're also imploding. (laughs) It's really quite funny to watch. Susan Sarandon uh, tweeted something about how Trump was encouraging women and people of color to run for office. And she was immediately attacked by Deborah Messing, who slammed her for giving President Trump any credit at all. anything. Silly goose. Deborah Messing also attacked Susan Sarandon for supporting Bernie Sanders. I mean, this whole thing is getting so convoluted and ugly. And what's happening is that all of these activists or so-called activists are starting to turn on each other. It's very ugly and, in my mind, incredibly stupid. So the upcoming political season looks like it's going to be nothing less than a circus and a good show for those of us who are watching from the sidelines. But it's a sad day for America when our political system has devolved into such chaos. We'll talk more about this on another show. I'm sure we'll talk about it many times. In the meantime, I want to thank you for being with me today, for joining me on this show, and I want to wish you a good week, and I hope you will join me again next week, same time. I'll look forward to seeing you then. You've been listening to News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.